Hello, my name's Tom Boone. And I'm Joanna Bailey. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Simple Flying Podcast, where we'll give you the lowdown on the latest news from the world of commercial aviation. Here's what we have for you this week. Coming up today, it seems JetBlue has finally beaten down Frontier in the race to acquire Spirit. But will the deal get approved? I'll investigate. While Tom reveals exactly when we're likely to see a 777X in British Airways livery. Joe will uncover the latest design changes to a future supersonic passenger plane, while I look at the scale of chaos caused by Lufthansa strikes. Finally, I'll see how Nancy Pelosi managed to break one of the world's most popular flight tracking services. So now you know what's in store, let's get on with the show. Well, I think I'll kick off today, Tom, because it seems like the saga of the bidding war between Frontier and JetBlue to acquire Spirit Airlines has finally come to an end. Um, We had notification last week, quite late at night for us in Europe, um, that the deal that Frontier had offered for Spirit Airlines was all off. Um, It was on Wednesday, Spirit announced that it had terminated the merger agreement um, with Frontier Group Holdings. And it came literally hours before the Spirit Airlines shareholders were set to bid on the proposal from Frontier. Um, The carrier had actually been delaying the vote because it sought to appeal to their shareholders to support this merger merger, even though JetBlue was offering more money. But um, it now seems they've come to the conclusion that maybe they should just take the money um, rather than trying to stick with the low cost mantra. Um, And they pulled out of the deal. Ted Christie, president and CEO of Spirit Airlines, commented that he was disappointed they had to terminate the proposed merger, but that he was proud of the dedicated work of his team members on the transaction over the past many months um, and that the company would continue to have ongoing discussions with JetBlue as they look for the best path forward for both Spirit and the stockholders. Um, So it seemed like the vote did not go ahead. Um, In fact, we know now that the vote did not go ahead because that was announced literally moments before it was supposed to go ahead. Um, And in fact, the very next day, uh, we had the notice from JetBlue saying that they had confirmed that they would be going ahead with the planned merger with Spirit. Um, So, you know, this was obviously something that was spoken about in some detail behind closed doors before we got to hear anything about it. Um, But it was approved um, by the boards of directors of both airlines, which would see JetBlue acquiring Spirit for 33 Point, uh, sorry, $33.50 per share in cash. And this included a prepayment of $2.50 per share once the Spirit stockholders approve the transaction. So that's a nice little carrot I think they're dangling. That's a, you know, any, any major shareholders in Spirit would get a nice little windfall even before the deal is approved by the competitions authority. Um, so altogether, Spirit's going to be bought out for a grand total of round about $3.8 billion. Um, so yeah, a a very nice windfall for spirit shareholders. But of course, this isn't the end of the story. This is really just the beginning. Um, there's an awfully long way to go before the, the merger actually goes ahead. If JetBlue does merge with Spirit, it would create the fifth largest US airline. Um, and the value of the newly combined entity would be around 7.6 billion US dollars. Um, more importantly, it will create an airline with a total fleet size of 458 planes. Um, looking at that on the scale of the world, it would overtake the likes of Turkish Airlines 
and Air China and would become the world's eighth largest carrier by fleet size. So, you know, major changes here. Um, in the US, of course, it would be fifth in the mainline carriers, still not as big as SkyWest, but they're in the regional market. So we don't tend to include those in that ranking. Um, but a very strong position for Spirit and JetBlue for the future. In particular, um, for JetBlue, it's an incredibly good foot in the door to some key leisure markets, um, particularly down in Florida, Fort Lauderdale, Orlando, you know, are very important hubs for Spirit, um, but also San Juan and Los Angeles. It will also increase its position in some of the key hubs where the big four airlines um, have their strongholding, such as Dallas, Las Vegas, Atlanta and Chicago. On the face of it, it looks like it's fair competition. It is kind of, you know, they're going to be putting up a fight against the big four. Um, but the really unknown part is that the um, Northeast Alliance, which is uh, JetBlue's tie-up with American Airlines, is still undergoing scrutiny. In fact, it's had a lawsuit brought against it um, saying that it's unfair competition. And the hearing for that hasn't happened yet. So, you know, if JetBlue and um, American Airlines fail on the Northeast Alliance, it's, you know, it's unknown what effect this will have on the Spirit JetBlue tie-up. So, um, you know, I think we've got a waiting game to play now. The two companies have kind of said they expect regulatory processes to be finished in around the first half of 2024. So we're kind of looking, you know, around two years from now. So nothing is going to change overnight. Nothing's going to happen very quickly. As, as with any of these big merger and acquisition deals, there's an awful lot of red tape to cut through. Um, but one of the things I'm kind of curious about is um, JetBlue has said that it will JetBlueify all of Spirit's fleet. Um, that's a massive refit because Spirit doesn't have seatback screens and obviously doesn't have the Mint product on any of its planes. Um, so, you know, if it does go ahead, there's going to be more investment required from JetBlue, certainly, if it wants to maintain its brand um, and product positioning on those planes. Yeah, it's um, it's one to watch. I can't see really Spirit and JetBlue having that synergy, but we'll see what comes out of it. Um, I wanted to talk about something that's going to happen a bit before 2024, a bit after 2024, actually, and that's the British Airways um, 777X order. So, you know, the carrier originally placed its order um, back in early 2019, and it was expecting to take its first deliveries of the plane this year, because bear in mind, the plane was meant to be already in service with Lufthansa and a couple of other airlines by now. But, um, you know, we've seen the program pushed back several times. First, it was um, issues with the engines delaying the first flight. Um, and, you know, now there's more uh, scrutiny on the certification requirements. So Boeing's now expecting the certification of the 777X in late 2024, with um, airline deliveries starting early 2025. Of course, you know, our, our last... IAG update on when the triple sevens uh, would be delivered was a delivery window of 2024 to 2027. And, um, you know, at, at the time that Boeing delayed the plane, I emailed IAG and uh, said, Boeing's de delayed the plane, you know, obviously, it's not going to be delivered in 2024, if they're not expecting it to until 2025 now. So what what's happening with you guys? And, um, you know, this has happened a couple of times, and both times they've kind of 
said, oh, you know, like we're not commenting on it, blah, blah, blah. Um, but what is interesting is they do always end up commenting on it. And it seems to be in their, their quarterly presentations where this news comes out. So the most recent um, one was the Q2 results, which was held last Friday. And I was scrolling through it in the morning as I do before I have my coffee. Um, and a lot of the sort of presentation was just sort of typical results stuff like, oh, who really cares about this? Uh, but then I got to a slide called Recent Fleet Replacement Orders, Important Step Towards Net Zero Emissions. Um, and it listed all the aircraft types where there's either committed orders or orders subject to shareholder approval, um, and how many orders are firm, how many are options. And on that, there was the 777-9. So there's 18 firm um, 777X orders and 24 options. And they are now listed as being delivered between 2026 and 2028. So it's a slightly smaller window than before, because bear in mind, uh, it was previously a three-year window. It's now a two-year window, um, but it's also slightly later. Um, so, you know, it's it's interesting um, to see when that will come. Um, IAG hasn't been very vocal about the the triple seven X program, unlike Tim Clark, who's been very vocal negatively, and uh, Albaco has been very vocal positively, as we spoke about last week on the podcast. Um, what was interesting as well, though, is that it looks like there's slightly better news for the 787-10. So there's now 10-10 um, orders outstanding. The airline took delivery of two, uh, two of twelve so far on June twenty eighth and July first, twenty twenty, and then there's been no additional deliveries since then. Um, so deliveries of the Dreamliner have been halted for over a year, but actually BA hasn't taken a Dreamliner in over two years. Um, Clearly, IAG shares the view that with Boeing that deliveries are going to resume before too long because it said that the remaining 10 um, Dreamliners are going to be delivered between 2022 and 2024. Um, of course, there's six options for further 787-10s, but I don't know if they would be um, taken. But there are certainly planes ready to go as soon as the thing is recertified because we've seen them um, in storage. You know, they've already flown... Um, they they fly, um, they're ready to go. Um, in terms of the other aircraft IAG is expecting, so far it's got 119 firm orders outstanding alongside 146 options. And then there's a further 87 firm orders and 150 options subject to shareholder approval. Um, so in terms of the ones that aren't subject to shareholder approval, there's 60 firm A320neo family aircraft due between 2022 and 2025 with a further 50 options, 14 firm A321XLRs uh, with 14 more options from 2024 to 2025, and 17 firm A350s between 2022 and 2030. But interestingly, there's 52 options there, so they can really ramp up the 350 fleet if they want. Now, in terms of stuff uh, subject to shareholder approval, you've got 37 firm A320neo family orders and 50 options, and they would be delivered between 2025 and 2028. And then there's 35 firm uh, 737-8200 maxes and 25 firm 737 max 10s and a further 100 options, and they would be delivered between 23 and 27. Mm. So a lot of aircraft in the pipeline for IAG. 
Mm, absolutely. Um, they've they've been very busy. Yeah, bear in mind those last numbers that I were talking about were for the whole of IAG, so Aer Lingus, Iberia, Vueling, etc. Uh, yeah. Whereas the 777X and the 787 are just British Airways. Definitely British Airways, yeah. Mm. Oh, exciting times. I'm uh, keen to see them renewing their fleet. And I'm very interested to see where these uh, 737 Maxes end up. <laughs> mm, uh, no clue definitely. where they're going yet. Um, but yeah, we'll... well, I mean, we all have our ideas. And I know my ideas are different to some other ideas. We'll wait <laughs> Let's and see. wait and see. Absolutely. Um, so I wanted to touch on... Um, a rather controversial aircraft, I think. Um, I think I've talked about it on the podcast probably several times before because I'm kind of obsessed. Um, but one of the highlights of the Farnborough Air Show for me was the introduction of the new and freshly designed configuration for um, what is set to be the world's next supersonic passenger transport, the Boom Overture. Um the concept for this airplane has been floating around since about 2016 um, when we when it was first announced. Um, and at the very start, it was a twin jet, just had one engine under each wing. Um, but later, I think quite early into the program, they actually added a third engine, um, one up on the tail, which apparently was necessary to achieve the 180 minutes ETOPS. Um, but since then, obviously, lots of time has passed and the um, concept for Overture has undergone rigorous simulation testing and lots of design cycles to perfect the configuration of the jet that will actually go into production. Um, the CEO, Blake Stroll, who has been on my f uh, webinars before, unveiled the design changes to a packed room of journalists, prospective clients, stakeholders on day two of the air show. I think it was one of the most well-attended press conferences I've ever been to. Um, so, you know, despite people's concerns for this aircraft, um, there's definitely a lot of interest in it. Um, and he commented that the reason it had undergone such a big redesign wasn't because there was something wrong with the original, the way that the plane looked. Um, it was because they're learning. So he said they've had more than 26 million hours of simulation run on the design of this plane. They've iterated through around 50 different design cycles um, and they've confirmed this final design with around five to six wind tunnel tests. Um, and all of this has come out with an overture that looks quite a lot different to how it looked when they first announced the project. Um, amongst other design changes, the most obvious change is that the trijet is now a quadjet. Um, but why? So, you know, adding an extra engine to overture might seem kind of counterproductive, you know, considering this jet um, wants to operate at net zero carbon. And, you know, the fact that we're seeing so many other quadjets in the aviation world being phased out or being used less, adding an additional power plant almost seems contrary to its mission of achieving sustainable supersonic flight. More weight, more emissions, more fuel, more maintenance. Um, but Boom has had some well thought out reasonings for this particular design change, um, which I was really pleased to hear from them um, because I asked them after the show. They, did, they didn't explain it very well in the press conference. So I asked them after the show for a more thorough explanation. And what they told me was... Um, that the selection of the four-engine configuration followed extensive research and development um, and efforts to understand the supply chain capabilities of actually producing these engines. So the first important thing is that if you've got uh, four engines, you can obviously have smaller engines than if you've got three more powerful engines. So um, they knew they needed three. 
by adding four, they could shrink the size of each component. Um, and the way Blake Scholl described it was that he kind of started with the turbine blades and, you know, what was the maximum size or what was a good production size to be able to mass produce. And then he kind of worked backwards from there, um, you know, with the thrust still in mind, obviously, to achieving supersonic flight. This isn't a plane that's going to have afterburners. So, you know, those need to be powerful enough engines to get up to supersonic speed. Um, but they, you know, they wanted to have something that would fall within the current constraints of the supply chain. So I think that's quite interesting that they're thinking about, you know, how how is this going to be mass produced and not just going, right, we need this big expensive engine that, you know, maybe fitted 10 or 20, maybe 30 aircraft at the most. And we need you to put all your design time into it. You know, they're kind of going, right, let's work with what's already out there and see how we can but adapt. is there really anything out there? Um, so... I'll come to that in a minute. Let me let me continue on the the choice of four engines, and I will come to um, their choice of power plant plant supplier in the in the end. Um, so another important reason that they're going to have four rather than three is because having four engines under the wing is a lot easier for customers to maintain than two on the wing and one on the tail. I mean, that's kind of obvious, I guess. But, you know, Trijets have worked for airlines in the past, so I don't think that was a deal breaker. But I guess it does streamline the maintenance somewhat. Um, and then finally, and this was an interesting one, um, the location of the power plants have actually moved a lot further back. Um uh, Blake <laughs> described it as like it's kind of like the Concorde and the 747 had a baby actually this new design is very reminiscent of the Concorde um, in terms of where the engines are located they're right at the back and the bottom of the wings um, obviously this is largely for the balance of the aircraft um, but he also mentioned it provides additional safety for the passengers. And this seemed a bit far-fetched to me, so I'll take your um, input on this, Tom. But he talked to us about rotor burst zone, which is the area of the aircraft that could be impacted in the event of an uncontained engine failure. Um, you know, it's a very rare occurrence, but you, there has been the situation, obviously, in the past with Southwest Airlines, where I think it was 2018, where a, a turbine blade did go through a passenger window, and unfortunately, hmm. somebody actually died. Um, obviously, well, I mean, what a, I've noticed traveling with Ryanair is that um, on both sides of the aircraft, there's a window missing around about where the turbine blade is. Mm, that's interesting. Maybe that's the rotorbust zone. Um, window for protection. Um, so he was kind of selling it like this was also a safety issue or, a, you know, it could improve or lessen the risk of something happening. Um, but then someone in the comments on my article actually pointed out that um, if the rotor burst zone is so far back and behind the bulkhead, then surely you, you run the risk of another Concorde situation where there's an uncontained engine failure and it actually ruptures the fuel tanks. But anyway, that's beside the point something for listeners to think on about, I guess. Um, but as you mentioned, Tom, the, the elephant in the room really is the fact that they do not have a power plant. Um, you know, with no manufacturer lined up, the Overture is nothing but a very nice looking glider, to be honest. Um, they, there were rumours last year about a partnership with Rolls-Royce, but I saw in the press this week that Warren East said they haven't been working with Boom. They've got no intention of working with Boom. Um, so that's obviously put the lid on that little rumour. Um, 
Um, so, you know, there's other engine manufacturers out there. Blake um, commented that they've made a lot more progress in propulsion than they were prepared to share at the show, um, that there were different commercial cores that would be relatively straightforward to adapt for supersonic flight. Um, I guess he's talking about increasing the bypass ratio of something that's already out there, but I don't really know if that's possible with the existing technology. Um but he said, you know, there's something that they'll have to share hopefully later in the year, but today was not the day. Um, they don't have a lot of time to sort this out. They want to start producing the Overture in 2024, and the first complete airframe is supposed to be rolling out in 2025. By 2026, according to their timeline, we should see it in the sky for the first, first time. Um, so there's not an awful lot of time for them to get this power plant issue sorted. I would say if they haven't made an announcement by the end of this year, it almost adds fuel to the fire for all the people that are saying that this is a PR exercise that will never actually fly. I mean, you know, like I don't want to be too sceptical, but you look at the 777X, that's yeah. a roughly similar time of getting it out. And, you know, this it's thing's already been flying now for isn't it? over a year. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a more straightforward aircraft, already been flying for over a year. Um, you know, it's based on an old design as well. So it's not like mm. a brand new, new thing. And... Yeah, I it just to me on the face of it, you know, doesn't really seem possible, but I'm not I don't want to say that it's not possible, you know. No, exactly. I mean, that's not the entry into service date, that is to start hmm. the flight test campaign, but um even so, I think, you know, they're pushing it to unless you really can adapt to I don't know, some sort of existing GTF to become the the next supersonic engine, but I'm not an engineer. Maybe people could uh, yeah. let us know if if that is something that could happen. We should just rebuild Concord. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Well, this one looks awfully like Concord. Actually, the hmm. um, the the body shape is slightly more bulbous at the front because they use a process called area rolling for better aerodynamics. But they're learning from the um, the aerodynamics of Concord. This is what's inspired the Overture for sure. Um, and the redesigned wing, it's actually a gull wing. If you look at it from the front, it kind of um, has a bit of a wave to it. Um, but overall, I think the the latest iteration looks even more like Concord than the first um, graphics that we saw for this plane. So if this is what goes in, into production, it is literally Concord Mark II. There's there's nothing particularly new and groundbreaking about it. But anyway, I'll stop talking about this um, paper airplane for a bit and let you talk about real aviation. Yeah, so I wanted to obviously talk about Lufthansa because why not? Um, they've had a little bit of a fun week last week and it looks like it's going to get even more fun. So um, what I found quite interesting was on Tuesday, um, was it Tuesday or Wednesday? But um, early, earlier last week, um, Lufthansa basically revealed the all of its or 20,000 roughly ground handlers were going to go on strike. And obviously, without ground handlers, you can't fuel aircraft, you can't load baggage, you can't unload baggage, you can't push back, etc., etc. So that's a big problem. Um, in basically, this meant that Lufthansa cancelled its almost its entire flying program for uh, for a whole twenty four hour period um, for the whole of Wednesday. So you know, it's not great on the first of it. Um, they had to cancel. Um, a total of around a thousand flights, so six hundred and forty-six from 
um, from Frankfurt on the, the Wednesday and 32 the night before and 330 from Munich with 15 the night before. Um, so that was meant to, or it's estimated to hit 134,000 passengers, 92,000 in Frankfurt, 42,000 in Munich. And obviously, you know, it's, this is really the worst time for something to, like this to happen from a passenger perspective because, you know, even when BA had its strike uh, in 2019, you know, it was possible for some passengers to be rebooked with other airlines. But um, if you look, to take the Heathrow-Frankfurt uh, route, for example, Lufthansa normally has nine flights scheduled on that route. Um, so you've got nine Fairly, I would imagine, fairly full A320s worth of passengers to be re 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 accommodated. Um, Heathrow had, uh, or British Airways had two uh, five flights scheduled. Two of those had already been cancelled. So the two from the cancelled BA flights had probably been put on the three remaining BA flights, which meant they were probably quite full already, which doesn't really leave any place for Lufthansa passengers. Um, so the only option really then is to put Lufthansa passengers on the next day. But then, of course, these flights are going to be pretty full already. So it just it really was not a great week to be a Lufthansa passenger. Um, Lufthansa really wasn't happy um, because the strike was called after two days of negotiations. Um, it was a warning strike. And they said it was um, it was, you know, it was incomprehensible. Um to, to call the strike. What I found really interesting, though, was that Verdi, the union that called the strike, um, in their initial statement had said that they would give um, a good time of, uh, or they would inform about a strike in good time so passengers can prepare for it and possibly reorientate themselves. Um, in reality, you know, the strike was given maybe 24 to 48 hours notice um, before they started. And it just still baffles me that like this can happen uh, because in the UK, I think you've got two weeks of a minimum to to allow preparations to, to take place. And, you know, I'm not saying people shouldn't strike, but... Um, you know, I'm all for people striking to get what they need. But, you know, I think there should at least be some, we're going to do this. You know, you've got time to, to work it out, not just this is happening tomorrow. You've got to cancel all your flights. Um, but, you know, it seems like Lufthansa might not even be out of the woods yet, because as I said, that was a warning strike. Uh, negotiations actually regarding that are um, taking place today and tomorrow, I believe, as we're recording this podcast. Um, and if they're still not happy with the negotiations, they can call on further strikes. Um, and that's the ground handlers. But it seems like the pilots are also going to perhaps get in on this because um, the pilots union um, has, or pilots in the union, the pilots union have overwhelmingly voted in favor for industrial action too. Um, so you can just see it could, it's already within uh, Europe becoming a summer of strikes, but it's not looking good for Lufthansa because, you know, if you've got the pilots um, striking, ground crew striking, maybe cabin crew go on strike as well, who knows? And um, they don't, they won't necessarily all go on strike on the same day, but each strike has a sort of similar amount of impact. So, um, it's just it's really hitting uh, hitting the airline where it hurts, and um, you know Lufthansa is saying it's being really generous in its offers. Uh, unions are saying it's not being generous enough. It will be interesting to see whether if if and when the middle ground is found, um, where it sits. Mm. 
absolutely. I mean, it seems to be the mark of 2022 is, uh, mm. you know, labour strikes and issues and industrial action, um, you know, and, and it's the last time we need it right now because there are yeah. already so many um, kind of yeah. uh, roadblocks in, in terms of the capacity at airports and that. So, uh, mm. yeah, tricky times, tricky times, but at least we're yeah. flying again when we can, <laughs> yeah. I guess is the way to look at it. So I wanted to round off today um, with a bit of a fun story, um, slightly outside of our normal wheelhouse, um, because uh, earlier this week... Wait, th- fun? Are we allowed to talk about fun here? <laughs> <laughs> we always used to have a funny story as our fifth, but there haven't hmm. been so many funny stories of, you know, cats going around airports or lions escaping from cargo holds. But um, this is a story um, about uh, the United States Speaker of the House and how she broke Flight Radar 24. If you remember the um, Kim Kardashian broke the internet while Pelosi broke FR24 um, because she was making her first visit to Taiwan. In fact, it was the first visit of a top United States official to Taiwan since 1997. Um, Because of the situation at the moment between China and the US, you know, there are kind of tensions rising. Um, Pelosi's flight was being very, very closely tracked by an awful lot of people. In fact, Mm. um, it became the most tracked flight of all time on Flight Radar 24 and actually caused the app to crash for a lot of people. Um, So the flight, she flew in on a modified Boeing 737 known as the C-40C and flew under flight number SPAR-19. She took off from Kuala Lumpur just before 4pm local time on Tuesday this week. Um, And throughout the flight to Taipei, which took around seven hours, um, the number of people tracking the flight just kept on increasing. Um, You know, Flight Radar was on Twitter saying, oh, we've just hit 100,000. Now we're at 200,000. And in fact, at one point, it peaked at having 708,000 simultaneous users. Um, By the time it landed in Taipei, which it did um, absolutely without incident, thank goodness, almost 3 million people had logged on and tracked the flight over the trip, the course of the seven-hour trip. Um, I think it would have been more than that, but flight radar actually crashed because there were so many people um, trying to log in and watch this flight taking place. Um, The company announced it was having technical problems on its platform and offered this statement following the event, not during the event, but following the event, uh, which read, an unprecedented sustained interest in this particular flight led to extremely heavy load on Flight Radar 24 infrastructure. Our teams immediately began efforts to maintain the stability of our services. Unfortunately, due to the volume of users, it was necessary to deploy our waiting room functionality, which meters access to Flight Radar 24 for non-subscribers. Shortly after Spa 19 landed, normal access for all users was restored quickly. We continue to make improvements to our system to provide for additional capacity for flights of extreme interest. I mean, I think, you know, this is um, a flight that was interesting to AvGeeks because it was the C40C. Um, It was interesting to people interested in politics because it was China and the US. Um, You know, there were a bunch of reasons people were logging on. And I think Flight Radar 24 was just not prepared for this. Um, But, you know, no bad on them because this is a very exceptional circumstance. Um, I know a few of our guys tried to log on. 
Lucas, who actually wrote up the article, said that the map was loading. He's a gold subscriber. The map was loading on the app, but there were no aircraft appearing. Um, people that had business level subscriptions, I think, were able to get in. Um, they were obviously jumping the queue. But for free users of the app, um, they were placed in a waiting room. And um, on average, the wait time was somewhere between 1,000 and 2,000 minutes. Um, an aviation photographer called Daniel Mina from Washington posted on his Instagram account that his wait time was 2,339 minutes. Um, somebody on our comments actually noted that just before it landed in Taipei, um, their waiting time was over 10,000 minutes. Now, obviously, they didn't have to wait that long because once the flight had landed, everybody logged off and everything was fine. Um, but I think it's you know very interesting to see how many people are aware of flight tracking sites and are aware that you can use them to follow these sorts of interesting journeys. Um, of course, it's you know it was a significant flight because it's the highest level United States visit to Taiwan in 25 years. Um, as we know, tensions have been rising between the US and China for quite some time. And China actually condemned Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. They even threatened military action against the United States, seeing the visit as a threat to their peace and the stability of the Taiwan Strait. And throughout the flight, particularly towards the end, there were rumors coming out on the media that the Chinese military had actually dispatched fighter jets flying over the Taiwan Strait. Um, and there was news that the, the Taiwanese were scrambling their own to intercept them. And, you know, we expected there to be a lot more action, but actually it was very boring. It was just the 737 coming into land. Um, there were some really interesting uh, live streams on YouTube as well that I was watching um, because I couldn't get onto Flight Radar 24 either. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I just thought it was an interesting little story. And, you know, bully for Pelosi having the brass balls to land in Taiwan amidst all this uh, heightened tension mm. Mm. <laughs> tom found it all very boring <laughs> yeah i don't know it's a plain landing you know it's not it doesn't tick my boxes of exciting <laughs> <laughs> i was expecting a fighter jet escort at the very least but it was uh, quite unremarkable um i guess that's a good thing um but yeah i i think uh, i guess that's why everybody was on there they, they were hoping for more action than there actually was mm. Anyway, I think that's all we've got time for on today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and welcome your feedback at podcast at simpleflying.com. For more great content, you can visit our website at simpleflying.com or find us on social media. Simply search for Simple Flying. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Bye.